Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Thursday, September 17th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, Regina King, one of the finest actors of our time. Uh, you might know her from the HBO series Watchmen, and now she's made her feature film directorial debut in a movie called One Night in Miami, which imagines uh, what an actual conversation was like. The actual conversation was between Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, Malcolm X and the NFLer Jim Brown. That conversation did happen after Muhammad Ali won a championship for the first time after he beat Sonny Liston, but we don't know what they said. So she imagines this conversation, and it's a, it's a pretty powerful conversation with Regina herself, who's a, a, entirely a legend. After that, Eli Glasner talks about what happens when the Toronto Film Festival or film festivals are virtual, when you can't get together and you go on the red carpet. He talks about, sure, it's not great, but he talks about some of the plus sides as well. And then um, you don't have to rent a tux, or at least you don't have to rent the bottom half of a tux. You can wear your jeans in the bottom half. And then Marie Chouinard talks about this amazing thing she's doing, just briefly, like where you can – she's an iconic Canadian choreographer. She talks about how she, she started doing this thing on Zoom where you can log on and you can make a wish and then the dancers in front of you will dance your wish. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And then finally, Rich O'Coin from Halifax, Nova Scotia, who biked from – one end of the United States to the other. And we talk about, sure, what he learned about the U.S. doing that. But more we talk about, like, what it means to be alone that long and what you get from being alone that long. All right. Show starts now. Hi. Welcome to the show. It is Thursday. I'm going to play you an old piece of tape right now from the archives. It's kind of hard to hear, but if you listen closely, I think you might recognize the voice. I don't have a mark on my face, yeah. and I upset son and listen, and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. I'm a bad man. I shook up the world. That's Cassius Clay, who, of course, later became known as Muhammad Ali. And that's right after he famously won his first boxing match against Sonny Liston. It was February 25th, 1964. He had just become the heavyweight champion of the world. And right after that fight, Cassius, as he was known at the time, got together with three friends to celebrate his historic win. Like you would, right? You're going to celebrate. But these weren't just any friends. They were heavyweights in their own way. The singer Sam Cooke, the NFLer Jim Brown, and the human rights activist Malcolm X. Four of the most important black voices of that era sitting in the same room. But here's the big mystery. What did they talk about that night? A lot of people have tried to imagine that conversation on that night. And in 2013, that question, what did they talk about, inspired a play called One Night in Miami by the playwright Kemp Powers. It explores how that conversation would come to embody the story of race and civil rights and equity in the United States. And now that play is a movie. Regina King directed it. She's an Oscar-winning actor. But this is her first time directing a feature film. It's screening at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. I got to catch up with Regina. Here's our conversation. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Tom. How are you? You know, thanks for asking. I'm doing fine. There's the 26 Emmy nominations that Watchmen is up for. There's the Oscar buzz already around this directorial debut. You became the first African-American woman director to have their film at the Venice Film Festival. But I'm thinking that, like, playing Dorothy from the Golden Girls... <laughs> It must have been pretty up there, too, in terms of what I need to congratulate you for. Oh, I love it. I love that you uh, uh, saw that. Golden Girls, hands down, is one of my top five. And um, to have the opportunity to just get to play with uh, actresses that I love, women that I love as people, and also uh, get people civically engaged, you know, it, it felt like a... A good thing, like like speaking art to power. 
I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about how that fits into what we're going to talk about today, because the idea of the relationship between art and power is a really big part of this film. So I want to start with the film's origins. It's an adaptation of the original play by Ken Powers, as I mentioned, inspired by a real-life sit-down that Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown had. How much of what I saw and how much of what the audience sees here is real and how much is imagined? Um, well, there are a lot of things that are real, but maybe the the timeline may have been shifted a bit, like uh, the f- photography, there's a scene in the pool, but um, I, most of the conversation no one really knows about, but I, I think Kim's, Kim's intention was taking the conversations that um, he has uh, as a black man, he's had with his friends in the, in in his dormitory in college, and uh, put that conversation there. Those those questions, those um, those uh, discussions there uh, in 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 that setting. And the thing that's so beautiful about it is that these um, these conversations at the these four men are having while they are icons, while while we know them as being these luminaries, they are men and they Mm -hmm. are uh, black men who have a shared experience of being a black man in America and also being a celebrity. And uh, what does that uh, look like for them individually and how does it uh, intersect? Um, And, and so, uh, I, I I felt that every black man that I know and love can see a bit of himself in in this story because uh, the things that they're speaking about are um, are universal to just not black men in America but just the black man's experience. You can take some a black man from in South Africa or a black man in 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 in. Um, Great Britain. And I, I think I'd, I'd uh, add Canada in there as well. It's interesting, yeah. Regina, that you start the film, you start the film with each of these men at their lowest. Yeah, I, I think that that's what humanizes uh, them immediately. So, I, you know, I think quickly uh, Kemp was so, so great. And when he uh, adapted um, the screenplay uh, at, at finding a way to... Because as a play, you know, you're there, you're mm. with the, 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 the actors. And so you can get there quickly because you also know that it's a play and you know that you're coming to see a play. With a film, it's different. And so how do we get people to immediately, how do we get them to look at them quickly as men? How do we remove all of the that the godlike thoughts people have when they're when you when you're talking about men that have achieved things that they have and 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 look and how do we get the audience to immediately look at them uh as as a, i guess for some equal so to speak uh, um just really get to the humanity quickly you know we so often see them in situations where they're reacting to things all the time because that's what they they were the voice for yeah. others. Yeah. And they decided to be that. So how do we see the people behind that? I, I want to go back to something you talked about earlier when we talked a little bit about the relationship between art and power. And that really comes up in one particular scene, really powerful scene in the film. So this is, uh, I'm going to play a clip. This is an exchange between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. And Malcolm is taking Sam to task for not using his music to speak more pointedly to the struggle struggle black America was facing at the time and of course continues to face. Take a listen to this. You know, I was thinking about this song I heard on the radio the other day, Sam. It's a song that made me think of you. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? is always asking how much do the oppressed have to do before they can be recognized as human beings. This is a white boy from Minnesota who has nothing to gain from writing a song that speaks more to the struggles of our people, more to the movement than anything that you have ever penned in your life, brother. 
I know, I, I, I know I'm not the true business person you are, my brother, but since you say being vocally in the struggle is bad for business, why has this song gone higher on the pop charts than anything you got out? Hmm? It's a clip from One Night in Miami, the feature film debut from Regina King. Regina, I have to say, since I'm talking to the director, we did edit that down a little bit for time. I know yeah. you've seen this film like 7,000 times, so I was like, oh, God, we should probably let her know we did that because she, she'll catch it. She'll catch it. I got it. No, I got it. <laughs> I, I knew what was going on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that scene because it, it was incredibly powerful. The exchanges were essentially imagined by Kim Powers and, of course, by you through your interpretation of the film and the text. But they were something else. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about those exchanges and a little bit about you showing the tension between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke. Um, you know, I think the, the thing that I, I think is so great about uh, Kemp's story is that um, he created a landscape that showed different um, ideals when it comes to um, being involved with... Uh, the struggle to, to have a racial uh, uh, equality, to have for black people to have equity, and what 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 he's explored here um, has shown that there is all have to exist. All different ways have to exist. Exist, you know, vocally, uh, economically, people that do things in a stealth way. Um, uh, uh, protest um, up in that moment in, in um, that was 64, you know, we had the church had been bombed in Birmingham and four girls had been killed. Megar Evers had been murdered. Uh, Dr. King had just given uh, his, I have a dream speech. And um, so you, you, you're meeting them at a time that all of these things have happened and these different thoughts of, how we should gain uh, racial uh, equality. How, how do we get equity in, in this space called America? Um, there's not a certain way to do that, but here was a space where we could debate about it mm. and, 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 and talk about in a safe space, um, all the different ways that uh, are necessary to obtain that. The, the the criticism and the conversation between Malcolm and Sam is a is a criticism that black musicians and entertainers still get are still talking about. Have you felt that tension in your own in your own life? Um. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I feel like that. There's always, you know, someone that feels like someone could be doing more, or uh, someone could be doing less. Uh, I, but I really tried not to, um, I really tried not to compare my, um, my, my abilities or my limitations to someone else's. Mm. I only, all I can do is hope that, um, whatever is happening with someone else is the same that's happening with me, that I'm living in my truth. Um, I personally um, have been in a wonderful position that I can be vocal through my art. You know, I've been able to be involved with work that um, allows me to have a, uh, uh, a vocal presence, if you will, mm -hmm. without um, being a, a person that's giving speeches and, and, and rallying the community that way. Um, but that's not my strength. And, and I know that that's not my strength. I know this is my strength through my art. So um, I wouldn't say that I've uh, been in a debate like that, mm. but I, I, I will say that I'm very clear that I am working to what's my strength as others do the same. And that's what's happening with um, Malcolm and Sam. Two, two men, and it was hard to ignore this, two men who would be dead within the year when we saw that scene. Yeah, it, 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 it's absolutely like uh, Sam was, was murdered at the end of that year and Malcolm like almost a year to the date. 
If you're just tuning in, my guest is Regina King. We're speaking about One Night in Miami. Um, first, I got to say, this is a Canadian show. I got to give you props for casting a Canadian in this. Uh, Eli <laughs> Gorey as Muhammad Ali. Uh, thank you. Thank you for casting a Canadian. Very exciting. Oh, oh, thank you, Canada, for, <laughs> for, for, for uh, being the home of Eli Gorey, because he is absolutely fantastic. What were you looking for here? Were you looking for someone who can embody the physicalities, the mannerisms of these incredibly legendary men, or more their convictions? What? This is a daunting task. Regina, yeah. to, to cast these guys, you know, for them too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I would first and foremost for the, 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 a great actor, for the best actor for the role that understood the enormous um, responsibility of portraying um, one of these men. And uh, just going into it, looking for uh, a, a great actor whose expectations um, uh, were similar to mine. And that the being that knowing that we are going into this, not doing any impersonations. We're going into this uh, because we're exploring um, uh, a part of these men that we've never, that we, if we have seen it, I, I haven't seen it. Mm. It's It's very clear to me why this story is so important to you and why you wanted to make this into your directorial debut you are the first African-American woman to director to have their film included at the Venice Film Festival. You have the potential to be the first black woman to win an Oscar for film direction. We had Gina Prince-Bitewood on the show recently for her latest film, The Old Guard, which made her the first black woman to direct a feature film superhero adaptation. And she said something interesting about being the first that I wanted to play for you. I hate that in 2020, we're still having firsts. Like, it's maddening. But I look over my career you know, 20, 25 years in this business and how many rooms that I've been the only one. Um, it is exhausting. And there is so much pressure on you to, you know, represent everything, to always be fighting and oftentimes not being respected for standing up and fighting. Um, but there's enormous pressure to get it right so that you don't kill the opportunity for others coming behind you. So you don't kill the opportunity for others coming behind you. I, I want to say for radio listeners right now, I could see you nodding your head mm-hmm. while, while she was saying that. Um, tell me a little bit about what you were thinking while listening to her there. Well, I mean, everything she's saying is right. And, you know, I, I, I mirror this sentiment. You know, what I was asked that question about I, the uh, Venice Film Festival. Um, and I said that, you know, hopefully one night in Miami performs well, because unfortunately, um, if it doesn't, then it's not going to allow the opportunities for so many other talented uh, black women filmmakers to uh, to show what they can do. And um, it is, it is it's so great that you play that because Gina is a person that she's checking on me all the time. She calls me, how you doing, sis? Right. You know, like she said, in 2020, for, for to be a first like that is, I understand when people say that it's, it's groundbreaking because ground always has to be broken when something has never happened before. Mm. But there is a bit of sadness that comes along with it because it's like. Why hasn't it happened before? Why hasn't it happened before? Yeah, when I can name how many pieces of art that I've seen from Black female filmmakers, that that's amazing. And so, yeah. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close things off like this. Um, and it's a bit of a tough one, but I, I think we can do this. Given the premise of the film, if Regina King had one night to sit down with three of her contemporaries, three people from various fields who respect you enough to challenge you and, 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 and help one another out and be tough and be kind and be strong. Who are those three people and why? Oh, yeah, that is tough. Jeez. <laughs> You're supposed to call me ahead of time. <laughs> Shirley Chisholm, um, my mother, and then third would be, hmm, maybe Ambassador Shabazz, Malcolm's eldest daughter. 
I think those three. Those are my three. That's good. That's a good room to be in. Can you give me one why that encapsulates all of them? I guess because surely I've never gotten to know and I've been studying her for so long and um, she feels like if I would ask her a question, she would challenge me with the why I'm asking that question Mm -hmm. so that I would really make sure that I'm asking the, the, the right question to get the information that I need. And your mom? Again, the same way, always pushing me to uh, think with every fiber, you know, like just not what was think with alignment of my mind and heart and soul, like spiritual thinking. And they're and they're they're getting me to rap, so I'll give you I'll give you a second here for Ambassador Shabazz. Because she's Malcolm's daughter, mm-hmm. <laughs> Betty and Malcolm Shabazz's daughter. I just, th- there is just so much there. And every time I get off the phone with her, I feel better or I feel like I need to go research something. And um, when I'm left feeling the desire to seek knowledge, um, it's always, a, that's a rewarding feeling. I'll say that after after I watched your film last night, not only was I moved by it, but I must have researched about five or six things uh, and and looked deeply into them. So uh, it certainly it certainly did that for me. Regina, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And next time you got to send me a question like that so that I can sound really uh, cool uh, when I <laughs> We're gonna cut that silence down. It'll sound like you came up with it off the top of your head. Regina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And we did. Regina King, the director of the new film One Night in Miami. Um, Regina King, also, I should say, one of the stars of the incredible HBO show Watchmen, which last night scored Emmys for Outstanding Cinematography for a Limited Series or Movie, Outstanding Fantasy, Sci-Fi Costumes, Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing for a Limited Series or Movie, and Outstanding Sound Mixing for a Limited Series or Movie. The Emmys that you're probably a bit more familiar with, like, you know, the acting ones and the best best ones, uh, they'll be coming up in the next a little while. We'll keep you uh, abreast of those. But in the meantime, earlier in the clip, you heard, um, uh, earlier in the interview, you heard Malcolm X play Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan for Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami. And um, Sam Cooke was inspired after that moment, was inspired by hearing Bob, Bob Dylan sing Blowing in the Wind and, and wondering why he hadn't written a song like that yet to write this song, one of the anthems, perhaps the anthem of the civil rights movement. Here it is. From 1964, that is Sam Cooke, and a change is going to come. Sam Cooke died right before that song came out, but he's one of the key figures in Regina King's new movie, One Night in Miami. Just before that, I was talking to Regina about that movie. This is her first time directing a feature film, and it's playing at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. My name is Tom Power. The Toronto International Film Festival wraps up tomorrow. This year, though, there's no red carpet to roll up, no popcorn to sweep off the floor. Basically, the end of the Toronto Film Festival just means closing a window on your browser. It's been a strange year for the film festival. They still really pulled it off. Films got screened. A-list actors, emerging filmmakers surprised us and amazed us. Razzles were dazzled. Only, it only happened online for the most part. There were a few exceptions, like when the festival reached back to the 50s and brought back drive-in movies. Lots of folks probably going steady right now, all thanks to TIFF. Eli Glasner is an arts and entertainment reporter with the CBC. Normally, you'd see him on a red carpet around this time of year, but now he's spending a lot more time on the regular carpet inside his home. Eli's here to tell us all about this year's film festival. Hi, Eli. How's it going? Hello. Hello. I mean, I assume you have laminate floor or something like that, you know. I, I yeah a little a li- I I saved a little patch of the red carpet so I put that down <laughs> under my feet so I can pretend and keep the glamour alive. All right, so how was it different this year than previous tiffs? 
I, I think the biggest thing that I've observed is that the buzz for the films is diluted because everybody's experience of the festival is different because for most of the media and even most of the people attending the festival in whatever capacity, especially if you're doing the digital thing, you have literally a window open on your browser. Just like you said, you have this kind of checkerboard of films and there are 48 hour windows and you kind of just choose what to watch at your leisure. So the normal machinery of the festival, you know, the red carpet premiere, and then two hours later, all everybody runs out and runs to social media and starts tweeting about the latest thing. And then you wake up in the morning and you read the reviews. That's all happening at different paces. And so in order for me to try and kind of take the temperature of TIFF and figure out what's really getting traction, what are people happy about, sad about, it's been different this year. And so it's like we're all at our own personal tips, but they don't congeal the way they normally would. But is there an upside to that? Like, are there any upsides to virtual film festivals? I mean, sure. Look, normally during TIFF, like as you said, I you're embedded, right? You, you're working like these 12-hour days. I'm trying to squeeze in as many screenings as physically possible. I'm rounding off every day, going to parties, schmoozing and whatnot. And now you can kind of pick your moments. And, you know, there is something nice about being able to kind of just open a tab in your browser, as you said, and now I'm at TIFF. And now after like my day is done and my reporting is done, I'm going to sit down on the couch with my family and watch this amazing cartoon Wolf Walkers. I mean, being able to share that with my family and being able to have those experiences on my own, it is, it is, look, it's frankly, it's convenient, but I do miss a lot of those things that uh, I don't get to do this year. I mean, one of the things that I kind of liked about it, and um, Eli, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here that I don't talk about too much on the radio. I'm from Newfoundland. I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if <laughs> really? I've ever, I don't, yeah, I've never mentioned that before, but I'm willing to let it out here now. Uh, but when I was growing up, I mean, TIFF was something that happened long ago and far away. I mean, I had sort of, you know, there was no access point to me at all. Mm. One thing I thought this year was, my God, if you're nowhere, no matter where you're living across Canada, maybe you'll be able to take in the festival. Did that end up happening? Do we have any idea how many people outside of Toronto might have participated this year? You know, I've asked Tiff about that and they haven't given me any numbers yet, but I know just anecdotally, uh, for example, there's a great critic that I follow who's based now in Los Angeles. He's from Mexico. His name is Carlos Aguilar. And he's never been able to go to TIFF because, you know, he's still working on just getting his citizenship in America. And so that's not an option. But for the first time, he was accredited and he was ecstatic and he was able to see some of his favorite films from some of his favorite directors and able to write about that. And it's not easy being a film critic in L.A. right now when everything is locked down. And so, you know, to see someone like that enjoying TIFF in whatever capacity to see uh, Melissa Silverstein in New York City running down her favorite films. She runs uh, Women in Hollywood a great advocacy organization. So I do think, you know, it reached a lot of people in a lot of different places. Some of those people who would have normally traveled to TIFF and you see tweets about missing their Tim Hortons and part of that kind of ritual TIFF experience. But I think certainly that's not always an option. And it did seem to stretch the the sphere of TIFF wider than ever before. Yeah. What is TIFF without a maple dip? Um, how did they decide who was going to have a physical screening? Because there were some, like there were some theater screenings, yeah. there were some drive-in screenings. Yeah, I think it was generally the bigger films that you would have seen at the gala. So the movies with the 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 big stars, your Idris Elba's and Concrete Cowboy, those kind of films that people are willing to to really <clears throat> want to see in a theater or will get in their car and drive to for a, a drive-in. And so they had these great kind of drive-in screenings where you drive your car, not on the red carpet, but <clears throat> through this kind of neon tunnel thing. A and there was actually some nice little moments at the opening film, American Utopia by uh, David Byrne, directed by Spike Lee. Jacqueline, who's a member of that ensemble and she was raised in Toronto and I she's a percussionist. She quarantined to be there at the introduction and she had this lovely little moment where she uh, you know, expressed her thanks and then the audience expressed their thanks 
by honking their horn. So it's just this weird 2020 moment where there's a screening. <laughs> you don't get to applaud, but you honk in appreciation. Oh, God. All right. Well, we got some time left. What are Eli Glasner's standout films of TIFF this year that we should check out? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I, I see a through line this year, the films that I've been drawn to and it's empathy. These movies that that really kind of bridge a divide that put you in someone else's shoes. Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao, starring Francis McDormand, is the best example possible. Uh, I mean, this is like a, a withering critique of the American dream. But I think the reason Francis is so powerful is just that she's a good listener. I mean, so much of that film is just her on the screen hearing other people's stories. And so you kind of lean into the screen. Beans um, by by Tracy Deer, Mohawk filmmaker, taking a very personal view of the uh, Oka crisis, remarkable. I mean, that film rocked me, astounded me, shook me, and just as it should. Mm-hmm. And I think what she's done, bringing you into this Mohawk family in the middle of that, and, and it made me realize things that I never got from the, the headlines. The father with Anthony Hopkins, that thing is a slow-moving horror film. I mean, what a way to bring the reality of dementia to life as everything is changing, but you see it from his perspective. And I'm, I know you spoke to him. I'm astounded at his courage yep. for someone in his point of his career to even play a part like mm-hmm. that is, is remarkable. Maybe, oh, and I, maybe I, I the scariest mention, movie, maybe the scariest movie I've seen this year. And it wasn't yeah, a horror film, you know, for sure. It, it, it is really like, it's, it's kind of terrifying, especially considering, you know, people, you know, in your lives, I did want to mention the one night in Miami is lovely and there's not enough great Eli's in the acting world. And so <laughs> Eli, Eli Gorey did a lovely job. In Malcolm X. Um, was there anything you're like, okay, that was fine. I saw it on the, on the, on the TV, but my God, I bet it'll be great if I can get into a theater to see it. Well, I thought um, Shiva Baby by Emma Seligman, this amazing Canadian film. And the, 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 the log line is there's a woman, her life is a mess and she's got this sugar daddy. And then she goes to sit Shiva, Jewish custom, when you're paying your respects to a family who's lost someone. And at that, 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 that house where she's stuck with all her Jewish relatives, her sugar daddy shows up. And then an ex. And so it's this kind of uncomfortable comedy all set in that one situation. I thought it was hilarious, but I'm just sitting here, you know, tittering at my my laptop by myself. And I really (laughs) I wanted the validation like, you know, a comedy is a thousand times better when you're with an audience. And that is a movie that deserves to be played to a packed room. And so, I mean, so exciting that people are discovering this director and writer's voice. But, you know, it was it was nothing of what it should have been. One minute left for this one. And it's a big one. Who is going to win the People's Choice Award, in your opinion? I see. I don't. I, it's tough because, like I said, like I'm just looking at social media. If I had to guess, and based on the fact that it's already won at Venice, I think it's Nomadland. It seems like something about that film and something about that mixture of reality and and talking about this woman that's on this journey to kind of follow her own path has really struck a chord. And maybe it says something to where we are right now as a society, as we're working through this pandemic. But it it did seem to be a great example of a film of no matter what your conditions, you see that and it helps. It, it kind of, it provokes a conversation with you and with the uh, with the film. Eli, I have to say, uh, one of the things I missed about TIFF this year was running into you at some party at one in the morning after eating <laughs> nothing but slices of pizza, popcorn, exactly. and wine all day. So uh, I, 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 hopefully we'll see you there next year. All right. Yeah, that sounds great, Tom. Take care, Eli. Eli Glasner is an arts and entertainment reporter with CBC. He joined me to chat about this year's mostly virtual Toronto International Film Festival. The festival wraps up tomorrow. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. 
You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. A lot of people agree that Marie Chouinard is one of Canada's most creative dancers and in some ways also one of Canada's most controversial ones. Her career stretches across four decades and counting. She travels all around the world performing and uh, performing with her dance group uh, Compagnie Marie Chouinard. She's also a choreographer. She loves to explore the human body the way it moves, its limitations. And her latest work is called Time for Time. This week, Compagnie Marie Chouinard is performing that piece as part of the Canadian stage company's reimagined fall season. So check this out. This is really interesting. Here's how it works. The dancers take turns interacting with the audience over Zoom. They will ask you, if you're in the audience, to say like your most deepest heartfelt wish. The dancers hear that wish, and then they turn that wish into a dance. Yeah, Marie Chouinard joined me on the line to tell you more. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Did I get that right? Like, how does this, how does time for time work? Well, it's happening on the Zoom, on Zoom, and all the audience um, in Brazil, in Toronto, in Japan, everywhere, they are all uh, into the, the platform, into the Zoom, and they are interacting when it's their turn, where they want to do so, with one dancer. And they are communicating directly to the dancer, speaking with the dancer, and everybody is witnessing, everybody in the audience is witnessing that exchange where the someone from the audience reveals a heartfelt wish, something that is important for them. And and then you see the dancer starting to create a, a dance, a three-minute-long dance that will somehow call or the stars to get aligned, or something to happen into the subconscious of the audience member, or mm. something so that there will be a shift, there will be an inner transformation, so that conditions will be able to uh, set, organize themselves, so that the wish will be uh, realized. In a way, you know, it's, uh, it's how life works. If something is clear inside you, if you can manifest clearly what you envision, uh, there is more chance that it, it, it will happen. So the first step towards the realization is uh, uh, aiming towards it somehow. I love that. I love that the, the dance is the manifestation itself of the, of the possible manifestation of a wish you have deep inside you. Can you give me an example of like uh, uh, a wish you might hear? Oh, there are so many different kinds of wish. You know, some, some wishes are for personal, personal relationships. Others are for your professional life. If I give you an example, I could say it could be um, a, a mother who has to find a better way to communicate with her daughter. Mm. You know, it can be simple as that. Or it can be um, uh, a prime minister wanting to understand more how we can give, bring something good for um, the climate because he does not get it. You know, it can be on so many levels, you know, it, it can be so... So different, so it's very up to every member of in the audience. Well, I would love to see the prime minister on on this call. By the way, that, that would give me great joy. <laughs> uh, I love that. I said so before we started talking, we were talking before, before we turned on the microphones, we were talking. And I said, I love that, you know, art, artists are coming, uh, overcoming limitations of the coronavirus to still make incredible art. And you said something really beautiful that I want, I want to see if I can get you to say again, <laughs> where you said, this isn't, this, I don't even think about this as art. This is just something that humans do. We did this five, six, seven thousand years ago. Yeah, I think that art is something that we have been already doing for thousands of years already. And so, Art conditions were different 10,000 years ago than now. So when you say that COVID is bringing to art very specific condition and it might, it might be difficult for a creator to create, no, come on. A creator, we create whatever the condition, whatever if we were born 10,000 years ago or if we will be born in 10,000 years, conditions are always different anyway. And our lives are always different and always 
our duty as a human being is to adapt and to organize ourselves to be happy and make people happy around us. So whatever the condition, that's our that's our job. <laughs> so for me, it's um, it's, it's uh, interesting to see the conditions always changing, always changing, and we always have to adapt to our human condition. How, how do you encourage the dancers if they don't know what the wish is going to be? How do you no. how do you guide the dancers? Actually, the the guide the guidance is actually since many years those dancers are dancing in the in the company, and we are approaching dance from. Not only the body, but also the spirit inside the body, the intelligence inside the body, the intuition inside the body. So we are approaching the human being as a whole. So we are, and we are working with the whole of it, not only with the physical body, but with all the bodies that are in, that are a part of ourselves, like the spirit and the and the, and the soul, everything. And specifically for this work, dancers have been training already now alone respecting the COVID rules into the studios because we have the chance to have three studios in our building. So they were, they were all on schedule with the different schedule and alone in the studio, working alone for hours and hours since the two, three months and just feeling the present moment, feeling their breath, feeling how they can um, clear uh, knots inside their energies, clear the ways, the, the circuits of energy, so that they are really open and dynamically present. How do they? And, how do the people who get their wishes fulfilled react when they see the dance? Well, well, you know, the fulfillment is not exactly maybe in the seconds. Maybe it's the process that is starting from the dance. I guess the process is starting from the moment you are thinking of what you will ask to the dancer. I I guess that I feel that. As soon as you start putting into words what is your wish, already the dynamic emotion has started towards the realization of your wish. And then the dancer does the dance, but then maybe the process is started, and, and then maybe it will be in a month, in two months, that this thing you will see it unfold into your life. But then it must, be, it must be very emotional to, like, to say your, your deepest, most heartfelt wish and then to have mm. someone dance it in front yeah. of you. Yeah, you're right, and I think that this emotion is part of accessing the possibility of transformation. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Marie Chouinard, world-renowned dancer and choreographer. She's premiering her work Time for Time this week here in Canada and around the world. It's a, a sort of a risky piece of dance because you never know what's going to happen, and it involves being on Zoom. And, you know, I want to go back to something we were talking about just then where you said, you know, you know, our, our art is just within us. Art is just something we do. Artists always make things when there are limitations. And I, I love how you see art as being so natural and the things that we do normally in our lives are, are in, any, in many ways artful. And I, I, I heard a story that the first time you sort of realized the power of movement was when you were swimming, when you were a kid. Am I right about that? Yes, you're right. Actually, yes, swimming. And the thing is that when you're swimming... You are breathing regularly. You, you, you know the the bubbles. The bubbles. I mean, swimming for. I was swimming, let's say, for an hour. You know, so it's it's kind of a meditation, and you feel the movement, and you feel the breath, and your mind gets into a specific set uh, of a feeling. You know, and and there, I really felt a, a very strong connection from my soul to the movement and the breath. And when did you connect that with dance? Well, you know, yeah, it's true. It's a good question because actually I started uh, dancing to a ba- a classical ballet. Yeah. So there was not really, um, the connection was not so obvious. But then I had a teacher and when even he was uh, teaching a classical movement, he would say, aha, you know, he would guide us with the sounding of his voice into the, the movement <laughs> yeah. and already that was bringing a feeling to the to the movement you know and I guess it, it started there again to feel oh yeah the, the, the connection is there even in ballet I can feel connected to the impulse of the, the breath and the and the inner movement mm, that's so beautiful I want to I want to play you a, a piece of music or I want to play you something take a listen to this
That is some sound of your dance company performing body remix Goldberg variations. You can't hear it on the radio, but in the piece, the dancers are using crutches and rope and harnesses to get around. Um, in another piece, famously, you, know, you, you urinated on stage, which has led you to, in all the research I did before I spoke to you, being called controversial so much. What, how do you feel about being called controversial? Well, I never felt myself I was controversial. Some people could say about me that I'm controversial, but really, truly, from my standpoint, I'm just creating beauty and uh, truth and revealing all aspects of our human life, and, and, but through a beautiful uh, connection with the uh, movement and body. So I'm, I'm not at all trying to, con- to be controversial. I'm just trying to celebrate life and to celebrate this, the, the ephemeral, ephemeral aspect of life and its beauty, absolute beauty. Why do you think people find it so hard to deal with or find it so controversial? Well, it's not important, you know. I mean, I mean, you know, maybe me too. I have some sometimes, you know, some kind of music, let's say maybe heavy metal. I find it quite upsetting for me and I mm-hmm. don't listen to it. So we all have our ways of liking this into art and not liking that. So that's normal. I, I don't, I mean... I say I don't care about that, but I mean, it's good, on the contrary, it's good that there are so many different things so that everybody can find their own uh, way of connecting with art. So, but I, I, but I, I, I do think that, I, I think that sometimes when people don't like something or they don't understand something, it's a very easy impulse to say it's bad or it's controversial, or, you know, or it's, it's evil or something like that, you know? I, I have no idea about that. This is not my re, my reference point. My reference point is not problems and people who are against something. My my reference is always positive and mm. going toward what what going forward for evolution. That that's how I I'm work. I'm not I'm not going back to things that might be a problem. That, that's not my way of thinking. My way of thinking is creation, action, effective action, and and uh, manifestation of uh, beauty into uh, space and time. Can I ask you a question to, to close things off? It's a bit, it's a bit off topic. Can I ask, can I ask you something? <laughs> Try. <laughs> What's your wish? I mean, in this, time, in, in, in this time for time, you're asking audience to give you their most heartfelt wishes. Mm. What's, mm. what's yours, especially during this moment we're in right uh, now? Oh, yeah. You know, I think I would like to find a wisdom way of communicating so that um, I can bring something to people, you know, even when I'm in a rush, even when there is a, a difficult situation or something, even then that I can be connected to what is beyond everything and that I, I can still there be connected to the, the, the basis of our reality and bring good around me. That, that's my deepest wish. What a beautiful wish. Thank you so much for your time today and, and good luck with everything. And it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Marie Chouinard is a world-renowned dancer and choreographer. Her dance troupe, Compagnie Marie Chouinard, premieres its new piece, Time for Time, this week on Zoom. It's part of the Canadian Stage Company's reimagined fall season. Tickets are free. We'll post a link to our Twitter page. We're at CBC Radio Q to start thinking about your wish right now. My name is Tom Power. By the way, if any of those people are from Dartmouth, I'm so, so sorry. That is Halifax's very own Rich O'Coin with his latest single, Reset. If you know anything about Rich O'Coin, he doesn't do anything halfway. This is a guy, check this out, whose first album featured over 500 different collaborators. Not online. He went to meet with 500 different people to make a record with them. He also once headed out on tour across Canada on a bicycle. But for his latest record, Rich has literally gone the extra mile. It's called United States, and it looks at the big issues facing America today, like racism, like gun violence, but through a Canadian perspective. But here's the thing. Rich didn't sit around and watch CNN and jot down notes. He traveled across 
America to get a close-up view of the small towns he felt he didn't often get to see in the media, on news networks. Oh, again on a bicycle. He biked across the United States from California all the way to New York. Desert heat, the Rockies, blasts of diesel truck smoke, all for the love of music and all for the creation of his art. Rich is finally back in Halifax now, and he joined me to talk about his adventure. How are you? Uh, I'm well under the circumstances and feeling very lucky to be back in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Before we talk about the bicycle trip, can you talk me through what you have to do to prepare for something like that? Like, you can't just get on your bike one day and go. I, actually, you can. <laughs> when I did, uh, I did Canada when I was 23, and I hadn't cycled, I think, more than maybe four kilometers before I did my first day of 70 kilometers. <laughs> uh, and I just asked a friend who had biked across Canada how far approximately I could get each day. And, and she was really kind and kind of gave me, we went to this cafe, her name's Dawn Shepard, and she's amazing. And, and she kind of just ran me through how to uh, navigate it. And then I kind of once I had that in place, then I was able to book the shows because I did 35 shows on that tour. Mm. Um, and I often joke that the booking of shows is harder than biking across the country. <laughs> but you're not, but I mean, I don't mean to be I don't mean to be uh, indelicate here, but, you know, you're not 23. You're mm. you're you know, the, but biking across <laughs> the United States as a 36 year old yeah. is, is going to be a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's. I expected it to be more difficult, but uh, it was actually a little easier, uh, maybe because I had said previous experience now, <laughs> instead of just jumping into it. Uh, so my body kind of was like, oh, we're doing this thing again. And uh, I think <laughs> at the end of Canada, at that point, like, I think maybe that's why I didn't do another bike ride for a decade, because uh, I think I was biked out and then after i finished this united states uh bike ride i i feel like i just want to do a bunch more while i still can i guess the the big question is why I mean, let's talk, let's talk specifically about the united states yeah T tell me about the origin of this idea to bike across the u.s and and observe things along the way i think uh uh it it might have been this like uh returning to the way that i saw uh, Canada and wanted to kind of have the same experience, but this country that I've toured pretty extensively in, but, um, you know, always with other bands in a car and, you know, going on freeways. And I kind of wanted to get onto those small roads and kind of see um, all these, uh, this other kind of side of the coin. I, w I do want to talk about the, the, the kind of the real meat of this thing, which is that I think in Canada, we are even now more than ever looking at the United States in a very uh, polarized sort of way. There's, you know, there's left America, there's right America, there's red America, blue America. But it's, it doesn't take it doesn't take much to see that the, it's actually pretty nuanced. It's a big country full of a lot of different people. So just largely, what did you observe as you were biking through the small towns of the United States? Um, I mean, across the board, just... Um just the replacement of old towns like main uh downtown kind of uh, business center being moved to the outskirts and suburbs of um of these like business parks that even in these small spots that have such an enormous business park compared to how small the town is uh because they're also feeding off these freeways that kind of have diverted away from these old uh, towns off like the I'm, I'm mostly in the western half of the the states I travel along uh, route 66 mm -hmm. and um, yeah it, I would be in these towns and you know I would see photos up in diners of when the town was prospering so you know you've you fully can kind of uh, understand how like a con like make America great again you know, can win people over. Yeah, that's interesting because when I was reading your when I was reading your your album notes for this, or sort of the, the notes around this record, it did feel like you either gained or you possess a great empathy. I mean, you know, it, it 
it sounds like, you know, when, when people vote for Donald Trump, these are people that I'm, my guess is these are not people you would necessarily agree with politically, Rich, but it sounded like you began to say, okay, I think I might understand why this is happening or why people are voting this way, right? Yeah, and, and it was interesting having conversations in, in these towns with probably, you know, uh, sometimes very outwardly, like, uh, uh, you know, meeting a real cowboy coming into a general store with with a gun holstered on his hip, like like old fashioned gunsling, but with like this modern handgun. And, and here I am with my like bike jersey on and a big sign that says uh, like no guns. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, still having that kind of the, the, those kind of more outwardly uh, uh, understood differences of opinion. But uh, but then in these other cases, like I, I don't know where the people I was talking to stood on the political spectrum, but uh, I could definitely see, you know, how widespread the um, the kind of lie of 2016 kind of spread and hopefully has been realized to be a lie for upcoming november you um were people nice to you people were nice i got um smoked out a couple times which is when a truck intentionally like a diesel truck uh pulls up alongside you and then uh puts it down into a low gear and just revs it and then the darkest sootiest smoke comes out and just like uh you can't see anything you have to stop and just to mess with you yeah and you're coughing up all the exhaust yeah oh i thought it was gonna i got smoked out a few times and like a couple of hippies invited to their vw van oh no no it's a it's a very unpleasant (laughs) (laughs) the side of a highway when you're like going down a hill and uh and you're like oh i'm either gonna crash or like fall over in a coughing fit as Canadians, I think it's easy to look at the U.S. and think, well, you know, things aren't as bad here as they are south of the border, though, my God, I mean, Canada has so many problems. It needs to sort out, and hopefully we're doing that. But what perspective on America are you hoping to offer as an outsider looking in? I guess, yeah, the mainly that an outsider's uh, experience, like uh, I was very inspired by like Robert Frank and his work, The Americans, um, uh, photography book and like that idea of coming into a, a country as a as an outsider gives you maybe a less biased uh, or or less history to kind of wade through when um, making your observations. I guess. Yeah, you can have you can have a bit more reality, right? You can you can actually see things and not rely on like history or or, or pop culture or the media just to just inform your your way of an actual, you know, your, from your idea of an actual place where people actually live, you know? Yeah, yeah. And even the, like personal history of, you know, uh, uh, we learned a lot of American history growing up, but, uh, you know, an American doing this bike tour would have such a different experience than, than I did. How long did it take you, top to bottom? It took uh, 61 days. How did you, did you bike back? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I want to do my, more biking, but no, no return journeys. It must have. Did you feel a bit strange when you got back to your apartment in Halifax, your house in Halifax, and you sat down on the couch and you're like, "Okay, this is. I got nowhere to go." Yeah, I think. Uh, I think I just went right into. It was. I finished uh, at the end of June, and uh, a couple of days later, I was up in Canada playing a Canada Day show. So, like, I, I, I genuinely think that doing a bike tour is more healthy and easier than what the normal musician uh, has to endure to uh, keep up the pace of a, a normal tour. That's a good point. You know, it beats sitting in the van eating Cheetos, I suppose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is uh, Halifax musician Rich O'Coin. We're talking about his new record, United States, which he wrote while cycling across America. Have a listen to this. That is Rich O'Coin with the song How It Breaks from his new album, United States. Rich changed shirts while that song was playing. Uh, it's the first costume change we've had on cue, and I'm, I'm 100% into it. But how did biking across the United States 
influence the sound of this record? I think uh, there's there's a lot more, maybe more energy riding while exercising on a bicycle <laughs> than, than like are you riding in your head while you're biking is that what yeah, you're doing? so so and, and and with like my uh headphones on like basically making an instrumental version of the song and then just doing what i do uh normally which is just sing a bunch of gibberish <laughs> over the song until something comes out that uh sounds like what the song should be about <laughs> and uh then kind of work my way from that one kind of accidental um use of english instead of gibberish <laughs> uh and then that kind of like informs what what i think the uh the underlining sentiment of uh, what, what I'm trying to express is. What about the text, though? I mean, you wrote these songs well, two years ago, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And some, yeah. of, you know, and, and there's you're, you're singing and just that song we heard just alone. You're singing about police brutality. You're mm-hmm. singing about people being shot for being black, people being shot based on the color of their skin. Again, two years ago, what is it like to hear those songs now in 2020 and realize they're still so relevant? Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, some other uh, folks have uh, commented on the uh, the kind of the relevancy and kind of thing that you're writing for now, but I think it just is showing that you know I could have written this in 2019 or 18 or 17 or 16, and we however long we have, I'll keep going back, and those still those problems still um, um, had deep roots. So uh, it's something that um you know we'll just keep coming back until we can actually uh change it does knowing that and doing this trip make you more hopeful or does it maybe make you more cynical interesting uh i i think hopeful i think a a good protest song um or or like a good protest documentary kind of has has moments where it 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 uh lays on the cynicism heavy but then gives you this like spark like there's always this arc in a documentary where it's like it's been this really heavy doc and then the last 10 minutes is like but it's not all bad yeah (laughs) and then and then and uh you know with a really good um protest song i think it's something that can uh you know motivate um um someone to um uh, you know uh, like like with with a lot of um music that uh it, it's a it's a good it's a good cause for 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 motivation and 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 kind of trying to have that energy of like togetherness i love that idea that like it's the musical embodiment Mus- music can be like the embodiment of that moment of the documentary at the end where they're <laughs> like but hold on maybe but the river's getting cleaned up you know yeah. And 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 usually in those last ten minutes in a documentary, they are playing one of these kind of type of songs. When I told some friends of mine I was talking to you, uh, we have some mutual friends being from the East Coast and all that. Um, this this I am motivated to ask it. I don't know if you're going to have the answer, but you do go through a lot of extremes, almost more than any other artist I know personally. For your work, whether it's biking across Canada, biking across the United States, you know, uh, having hundreds of people collaborate on a record, you know, having, making these painstaking video montages for your songs. You know, when I, I remember when you first came to St. John's and you were opening for Hey Rosetta, we had never seen anything like it in the face of the earth. You know, you were bringing parachutes with you and it made us all feel like we were in kindergarten and, and it made us in touch with our, our, our inner child and all that stuff. What is it that motivates you to go through such extremes for your uh, art? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I mean, I, it's, I was like, oh, this is going to be a real stumper of a question. No, no, it's pretty dumb. No, I'm pretty uh, dumb question. I no, I, I think it just comes down to looking. There, there's so many amazing artists out there. There's, there's more than enough art in the world, but we always need more art for the time that we're in. So like, um, and I guess thinking about all the other things being made, I try and think of like, what lane can I do and what can I offer that 
um, and maybe do it in a way that I can, you know, have a stamp of certainty that I'm doing something other artists aren't as interested in. And that's what I'm offering to the overall musical conversation. It does keep me close to the good stuff in our in our world. Rich, thanks so much for, for talking to me today. Thanks so kindly. That is a single off Rich O'Coin's new album, United States. That record's called Dopamine. It's dope. Before that, you heard my conversation. I'm so sorry. Before that, you heard my conversation with Rich O'Coin. His new album drops this Friday. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I was trying to make a play on words there. All right. So take a listen to this. It's the voice of the great jazz historian and critic Stanley Crouch. What jazz does is it, it uses democratic means to achieve utopia. See, that's what it really is about. See, that when somebody says that those guys are smoking, they're really swinging, then that's utopia. That's not democracy. You can hear there why Stanley Crouch is one of the most influential, vo- influential voices in contemporary American jazz. For him, jazz is a metaphor for the lasting contributions of black Americans to their country's democracy. Stanley Crouch, the writer, historian, and critic, died yesterday at the age of 74. Stanley Crouch got his start at the Village Voice newspaper in New York In the late 70s, he quickly became a prominent jazz critic in international publications like The New Yorker, Harper's Bazaar, and The New York Times. Along with the trumpeter Wynton Marsalis, he helped found Jazz at Lincoln Center, which is now a major institution for jazz concerts and education in the U.S. If you have records at home by Thelonious Monk, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, there's a pretty good chance Stanley Crouch wrote the liner notes. And I just want to end on his voice again. Here's the late Stanley Crouch talking about the pianist Jelly Roll Morton. When you hear Jelly Roll Morton singing Stars and Stripes Forever, and he said, I think the way he did it was something like he says that they, instead of saying, he said, they said, that's it. That's it. When you hear that, you know what that is. Jazz historian and critic Stanley Crouch died yesterday at 74. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, one word, no, two words, Kate Winslet. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.